Father, we thank you so much for everything that you have done for us. We thank you for your love and for your kindness. Jesus, we thank you that you came. Lord, we thank you that we can remember this time when you rode into Jerusalem. And Lord, you didn't go there uh, to to really um, revel in this praise and this um, uh, adulation that people brought as you travelled in on the donkey, Jesus. But you went there to be humiliated, to suffer, to die, and ultimately to bear the wrath that we deserve for our sin. Lord, I pray that this morning, as we consider this passage together, that you would be uh, pleased to, to use us, pleased to speak to our hearts, and Lord, that, that you would draw us close to yourself and we would understand what it is that you would say to us about your mercy and your grace. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Just let me get this Bible. Very good. Um, I, I have adjusted that, but I think it's okay to be fair. Um, so, Matthew chapter 21. It's a very simple story, isn't it? It's one that we're familiar with. Palm Sunday. Just give me a second while I find the right page. Matthew 21. We're very familiar with what happens. Jesus and his disciples come to Jerusalem. And Jesus tells his disciples to go and get a donkey. Now, he doesn't send them down to Avis, rent a donkey. He gives them very specific instructions on how to obtain this donkey then. What does he do? Let's read it again. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This itself shows something of the power of Jesus. Because he didn't really need to have to make arrangements, did he? He already knew that this donkey would be there. And he knew exactly how the disciples could get it. He tells his disciples where to go. They arrive. The donkey is there. It's in place. It's all ready. And then, in a clear fulfillment of prophecy, Jesus rides the donkey into the city. And his arrival is enthusiastically welcomed by the people. No doubt Jesus' enemies would have been very alarmed at this. Because it was so clear that what Jesus was doing here was fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah. And the passage goes on to say, doesn't it, that all this took place to fulfill what was said through the prophets. And then quoting from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read this here in Matthew 21. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here comes Jesus, entering into the city, fulfilling prophecy. It's an amazing image, isn't it? Can you picture it? All these people worshipping and proclaiming who he is. Shouting out, we read in verse 9. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna in the highest. But we know what's going to happen next. We know how the story is going to carry on. We know that one day soon, instead of crowds shouting Hosanna to the son of David, crowds will be shouting instead, crucify him. Why is that? What is the change? Why does public opinion, which is so positive now, switch to being so far against Jesus later on? You know, sometimes if I go around to someone's house for a meal and they've got a dog, this is what happens. I go in, I sit down, and the dog will almost always invariably come and sit next to me. The reason for this, I suspect, is because animals are quite intuitive and they're able to size people up and know what they're like. The dog takes one look at me and it goes, he is soft. (laughs) Look at this mug. If I sit next to him, cock my head to one side, give him that sad expression and whine a little bit, chances are it'll give me a bit of his food. My friends tend to say, hey, look at that, the dog likes you. But I think, no, he doesn't like me. He likes what he thinks he can get out of me. For half an hour, the dog may sit faithfully and loyally next to me by my side until I have finished my meal, at which point the dog is gone. Because <laughs> he's got no interest in me. It was the food that it was bothered about. Sadly, so often people come to Jesus with the same attitude as that dog. We want Jesus to do what we want from him. And as long as we think that he's going to do what we want, well, we'll follow him. I think we see that in the Bible at times, and we see that in our own lives as well. Crowds would come. They would follow Jesus because they saw what he could do for them. But then as soon as it seemed that he wasn't going to do what they wanted him to do, well, they wouldn't stay around. In the Bible, we see people following Jesus, marvelling at his miracles. Here is someone who can heal the sick, raise the dead, and make small amounts of food to feed thousands of people. This is a man who, if he was our king, Wow, there is no problem that we can't solve. Think about all the problems in our society, even today, and at that time as well. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a fulfillment of the prophecy. Look again at verse 5, quoting Zechariah. See, your king comes to you riding on a donkey. And the people must have loved this. Because by riding into the town on a donkey, Jesus is proclaiming himself as king. And if Jesus is our king, if this man who can heal the sick, who can raise the dead, who can turn water into wine, well, if he is the king, then think what he can do for us. What a manifesto he could bring. With him, the Israelites could overthrow the Romans, could tackle all of the problems, meet all of the needs. I mean, imagine today, Boris Johnson would be made up, wouldn't he? Wouldn't need to reform the NHS because Jesus has the power to heal. We wouldn't need food banks because Jesus can feed thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and fish. Financial problems? Well, he can turn water into wine. 
Or these days, maybe petrol, that's probably more valuable. This was exciting. Here was a new leader, a new king, one who could make everyone's lives easier. But Jesus didn't come to make life easy. People were interested in Jesus for things that he could do. But many people weren't interested in him because of who he was. They loved what he did, but not who he was. And the same can be true today. People followed Jesus thinking that maybe he would make them rich. Maybe he would make them healthy or happy or more fulfilled. Or maybe just improve their life in some other way. But then when they find that they follow Jesus and still get sick, still feel down, sometimes even find life harder as followers of Christ than they did before. When people lose their jobs or get sick. When people die, when accidents happen and life gets tough. Sometimes people drift away. They stop following Jesus. Because Jesus isn't doing the things that they hoped he would do for them. You know, there's a famous Bible verse that we often quote, which is Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. It's a great verse. I've got a mug at home and a coaster which has this verse on it to remind me of this wonderful truth. You might know it too. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. But quite often we forget to read the rest of that chapter, which explains that this verse is said to a people who had just been told they would spend the next 70 years in exile. And the passage goes on to explain that their hardships would cause them to turn back to their God. And that they would turn from their wicked ways and they would come back to the Lord with all of their hearts. And you see, that was God's plan of prosperity for them. The Christian life can be hard. What does God want for us? Ultimately, he wants us to turn to him. In some ways, the Christian life is a life of death. We have a cross as our central image in Christianity, don't we? And very kindly, uh, Jackie, who hasn't been able to come to the church for a little while because uh, of a recent operation, uh, but Jackie has made for us some crocheted crosses which we're going to give out at the end. Um, and you can use these as bookmarks and remind you, actually, what is Christianity all about? What is it the centre of Christianity? The, the centre of Christianity is Jesus' death on the cross. And we are called as well to die to sin, to die to ourselves, to put others before ourselves and to put Jesus before others. And this is so hard for us to do. Jesus warned in the parable of the sower that some seed fell on thorny ground and that when the cares of the world grew up, the seed withered and died. We don't want that to be us, do we? We want to be people who, through all the storms of life, through all the difficulties that we face, this doesn't take us by surprise, it doesn't catch us off guard. We don't expect life to be easy. But we know that we have hope because of what Jesus has done for us. Because we don't serve a God who ignored our suffering. We serve a God who came and entered into our suffering so that we would have a hope that one day we will be free from it. 
Hosanna to the son of David. These people probably thought that Messiah would come to overthrow the Romans, to bring wealth and health to the nations. But when that didn't happen, like a dog at a dining table, they wandered off. Why did public opinion change about Jesus? You know, some people follow Jesus for the things that he didn't come to provide. But also, there would have been those who stopped following Jesus because they didn't want what he did come to provide. <clears throat> I just want to read very briefly from John chapter 6, verse 51. And in John chapter 6, verse 51, we read this. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now, that sounds great. Let's carry on reading. This bread is my flesh, which I would give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate the manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And then in verse 60, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. You can accept it. And then in verse 66 we read, From this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And this isn't just random crowds who've come out to welcome people in to the town. These are his disciples. These are close followers. Not the twelve, but others that would have been around. They turned away. Why? Because they didn't want what Jesus was offering to them. It's a passage that seems hard, that John passage, isn't it? Hard to understand because it, what Jesus says is difficult to understand. But of course for us, we can look back at the cross and understand what Jesus was talking about, don't we? We know that Jesus was talking about sacrificing his body and his blood to stand in the place of the people in our place, to take the punishment that we deserve for our sin. That's something that this morning we are going to remember with this bread and wine after the service. Now we know this because we look back at the Easter story, if we will. Because our Bible doesn't stop at Matthew 21. It goes on and tells us what happens next. But what about these people who came out? I mean, these things hadn't happened yet. So should they have known what Jesus was saying? Well, yes, they should. Because the old of the Old Testament, which they did have, was prophesying the coming of the Messiah. The Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. 
The whole of Jewish history was pointing towards the fact that blood was necessary to be shed so that the forgiveness of sins would be possible. These people should have recognised that what Jesus was coming to do wasn't meant to just make their lives easier. It was much better than that. He was coming to lay down his own life so that we can be forgiven of our sin. That's why Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. That's the sort of king that he is. King who cares for his people and solves our greatest problem. But the problem is that many people don't want that sort of saviour. People don't want someone who would take that action because they don't understand their need of it. And the fact is that even today, we still see this. And sadly, you know, we, we see people who say that they're Christians, but refuse to accept that God poured out his wrath on Jesus at the cross. And that is incredibly sad. There are books written today by people who claim to be theologians, but deny that the wrath of God was satisfied in Christ. Because they just think that that's too brutal. And they can't imagine that our loving and compassionate God would punish his innocent son. It seems unacceptable. It seems devastatingly harsh. And because of that, people reject it because they don't want what Jesus came to do. They're not interested in what he offers. But we should be. Because what Jesus came to do was to save us. Jesus came to save us. And in Matthew 21, the people wanted saving. Many people want saving today. But what is it that we want to be saved from? We want to be saved from our poverty, from our health problems, our job insecurity. And all of these are legitimate concerns. But Jesus came primarily to save us from something far greater. Far more serious and far graver than any of these things. Jesus came to save us from something which makes all of our other problems and concerns seem to be petty by comparison, even when they are life and death. Jesus came to save us from ourselves, from our sin, and from the punishment that God the Father would pour out on us if we are not forgiven. And in order to do that, Jesus died on the cross. And in order to be saved, in a sense, we must share in his death. You see, our natural inclination is towards self-righteousness. As sinful people, we're not comfortable with needing to be saved. We want to think that we're self-sufficient, that we can do it on our own. We like to think, well, we're not really that bad. My sin isn't so serious that it needed God to step out of heaven and to die on a cross. We don't understand how serious our sin is. We don't understand how far we have wandered from God. We don't appreciate how drastic the action was that was needed to save us and bring us back into friendship with God. And I think this is firstly because we don't understand who God is. We don't fully comprehend how perfect he is, how glorious he is, how holy he is, and how just and righteous he is. We forget that this is our God who created the world, the powerful God, an all-consuming fire who will judge. And then secondly, we don't understand who we are. We don't understand how sinful we are. We don't understand how far and how much we have 
offended that holy, perfect and just God. We tend to say, well, I know my sins, they're not that great. I don't kill anyone. I don't rape people. I'm a pretty good person, really. We've misunderstood that all sin is horrible to God. Maybe this illustration might help. You know, if I told a lie to one of my friends, chances are, not, you know, what's the consequences? Fall out for a few days and we'll get over it. Not great, but, you know, what's going to happen? If I told a lie to my mum and dad, might not get any tea, might happen. If I told a lie to the police, you know, that could very well be a criminal offence, couldn't it? If I told a lie in court to a judge or a magistrate, the steward might correct me, but I'd be in contempt of court, wouldn't I? Or I'd perjure myself, or whatever. That's very serious. And if I told a lie to the Queen, well, that's treason. That's really serious. What changed in that situation? See, the, the offence was the same, wasn't it? It was a lie. The reason why the consequences got worse was because of the, the, the person that I was committing the offence against. We need to understand that every sin we commit, even the most minor thing that we brush off as nothing, it is an offence against the holy God who lovingly created the universe and us. And that is serious. We might not be murderers, but every sin we have ever committed is an offence against him. And when we sin, we spit in the face of a mighty God who has made us and who calls us and who loves us and who sent his own son to die in our place. And yet who we so often ignore and ridicule and turn against and sin against. This is serious. And the fact that we don't take it seriously makes it even more serious. When we understand who God is and who we are, we start to see how much we need his forgiveness, we need his mercy, we need his grace. And if we understand that need, then we start to understand what Jesus did, why he needed to do it, and why that is so important. Jesus needed to pay the high price so that we can be forgiven for our serious sin. And that is the only hope that we can have. We should welcome Jesus into our lives. Not to save us from some of our problems that we might have, but to save us from the sin which would send us to hell. Why did these people worship Jesus? Many of them because they thought that Jesus would give them something that he didn't come to give them. And why did they turn against him? In some cases, because they couldn't make sense of what it was that he really came to offer. At the triumphal entry, the way in which the people praised Jesus was enthusiastic, wasn't it? I mean, imagine going down to Queen's Drive after the service, cutting down the trees with a straight chainsaw, putting all the trees on the road and then taking our coats off and putting them on the road. I mean, when a football team wins and they do their victory parade, we see all the crowds, don't we, down the roads in Liverpool. But you don't see people laying down their jackets for the bus to drive over. 
These people took serious actions. They were serious and committed in what they were doing. Sometimes maybe we don't sing enthusiastically. And yet these people, they were serious and they were enthusiastically serious. But some of them were serious for the wrong reasons. It's easy to do, to just go along with things. And that's a challenge to us. Why do we come to church? Is it because we think it will make our lives better? Because it's a nice, respectable thing to do? Or is it, is it actually because we love God and we want to know him better? Because we want to know who he is and we understand what he has done for us. We know the price that Jesus paid lovingly for us. And in understanding that, we love him so much and we want to learn about him. We want to know him more. We want to sing his praise. We want to worship him from our hearts. And we want to share in fellowship with other people who love God. And we want to see how God is blessing us and working in our lives and encourage each other as a community of Christians. Because we want to take this message of this wonderful saviour who has come and we want to share it with other people who don't yet know the forgiveness that is offered to them by God. I hope that's why we come to church. I hope that's why we read our Bibles and pray. Because we love God and we want to know him. And we're thankful for what he has done for us. Maybe there's someone here who isn't a Christian. He's never heard or understood this before. You know, God is a God of love. He is merciful and he is kind. But he is also entirely and wholly just. And that means that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And so in order to satisfy his justice, God entered into our world. We understand God is three and yet one. God the Father, God the Son and God the Spirit. And God the Son, Jesus, the Word, he entered into our world became flesh, rode on a donkey, rode into Jerusalem, but greater still, he died in our place. He bore the wrath of the Father so that we could be forgiven. That is amazing, and it is the kindest thing that anyone has ever done for any of us. And I just hope that you will think about that, and that God will show himself to you, and that you'll turn to him. In a minute after the next hymn, we're going to have breaking of bread. This reminds us of what Jesus said. You remember what we read about in John? About eating his body and drinking his blood. It's not body and blood, it's bread and it is, well, it's not even wine, it's fruit juice. But it's a symbol. It might be a symbol, but it is still serious. And this table is not necessarily for, for everyone. It's for those who are trusting in Christ. For those who have committed their lives to him. And as we come to this table in a minute and consider the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, we should examine ourselves and ask ourselves seriously, are we trusting in Christ? Do we want to love him and honour him? Do our lives reflect his work to the world? Not perfectly, of course. That's why we need the gospel. But are we following Christ? Are we people who are being changed? People who are sorry for our sin and want to honour God with our lives? And you know, if you don't know whether you've put your trust in Christ, or if you know that you are continuing to rebel against his good and perfect ways, there's no need to, to take the bread of wine, stay, 
let it pass you by as it's given out. No one will judge you for that. There is no peer pressure here. But why not speak to somebody afterwards, maybe me or my dad, and ask what it means to be right with God so that we can pray together, maybe even meet up through the week. Consider what it means to put our trust in Christ and understand what he's done for us. We're going to finish there. Um, before we do have our communion, which my dad will come and do, um, just let me pray just to conclude this part of our service. <coughs> Father, you are the God who made the world. You are powerful, you are good, and you are holy. And we confess that many times our hearts are far from you. Lord, as we look at your law, as we look at the Ten Commandments, we recognise that we are not good people because we have had other gods. We have idolised things in our lives. We have blasphemed your name. We have stolen. We have lied. We have cheated. We have coveted. We have hated, which Jesus, we know, is like murder in our hearts. We have lusted, which is like adultery in our hearts. Lord, we have not always loved you with all our hearts and soul and mind, which we know sums up the whole Lord. And we have not always loved our neighbours as ourselves. Lord, we recognise that our sin is an offence to you. We recognise that in your perfection you must punish our sin. And yet we also know, Jesus, that you came into this world to stand in our place and to bear the shame and the punishment that we deserve. Jesus, we thank you that because you went to the cross, because you allowed your body to be broken and your blood to be shed, we have hope, not because we think we're righteous people, because we are surely not, but because of your righteousness, which is freely given to all those who will repent and trust in Christ. Lord, this morning, as we think about these things and as we come to break bread together, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your, of your love and draw us to yourself. In your name, Jesus. Amen.